0: Well, hey, take your Bibles and turn to Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19, we're going to be there. There's uh, men and women coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. I wanna get a copy of God's Word in front of you. We're gonna bounce a little bit, but I want you to see um, what we're going to be reading from Luke 19. If you were here during the announcements, you saw that Cal made a quick announcement from uh, the uh, men's vertical men's retreat last night. Here's a couple pictures of what's been going on the last couple, three days in the woods. Um, The weather was fantastic, and I hope it's that way this morning and they're not getting rained on uh, too hard, but um, as Cal mentioned in the video, he came to me yesterday afternoon after the morning session, and we were kind of in the activities section, so that means that there's a lot of guys playing kickball and dodgeball and tug-of-war, and um, I'm trying to look busy. So that I don't get recruited to any of those, because obviously when it comes to tug-of-war a guy like me, I'm in high demand, so I'm trying to, uh, you know, stay out of the way. And Cal came up to me and he was like, hey, I I just sense that the Spirit of God's moving amongst the men, and and, and what do you think about us just doing an impromptu baptism at the end of the third session tonight? And I said, well, talk to the other pastors, I'm glad to do that, and if everybody's in agreement, we can do that. So I taught the evening session last night, and... uh, what we didn't plan on was how late we would go. We got started late, and by the time we finished, it was well past nine. But uh, last night, to the, uh, to the light of high beams off of cars and flashlights, 26 guys walked into a murky lake and got baptized. And, um, keep praying for those guys. They're making commitments out in the woods the last couple days that are going to be challenged because there's spiritual warfare, right? when they get back to their families and to their jobs. And uh, just remember those guys in prayer. I believe in this series, which is called When God Draws Near, when, when, when God moves in your heart, there needs to be a, a response in that moment. And we're coming to the end of this series, and I really see this passage as kind of a, a, a critical contrast. I, I remember it was uh, January 16th, 2010, and uh, I was in uh, Haiti, I was in Port-au-Prince, and and less than a week earlier, there had been an earthquake that had leveled uh, much of the city. I was down there working with a a man by the name of Thomas Hurst. He is a uh, Pulitzer Prize-nominated war photographer. And over the 15 years before we were there in 2010, if there had been a skirmish or a disaster anywhere on the globe, he had covered it. He had been in Yugoslavia, in Croatia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, running to conflict. Unusual guy. And uh, that day, I was standing next to Thomas. We were interviewing um, a woman, and we were stationed kind of in this secure area. There was this Walden area around a Bible college, and with the chaos that was going on in the streets, many of the Christians in the churches and the students and the faculty had gathered behind this Um, brick-enclosed kind of campus, and we were just camped out there. And there were guards guarding access to that because that was just kind of the temperature of the city. And we were interviewing a a young lady, and Thomas was filming and taking, uh, asking this woman questions. She was a a British woman. She was the wife of one of the faculty at the school, and uh, her husband had been teaching the afternoon of the earthquake. The building had collapsed, and they were still Um, searching for him and we were conducting that interview and as we were asking her questions I was just the mic guy I was just helping him with sound and uh, we heard gunshots too close probably within 50 yards and and as soon as the gunshots went off Thomas said let's go And and the gunshots were just over the wall. There was a street just on the other side of where we were kind of based. And he immediately ran towards the gunshots. Everyone else was running away. I followed him. I don't know why. And and as we got towards the gate, there were people flooding into the gates. The guards were dealing with that chaos. But the fence, the brick wall was maybe 10 feet high. But near the gates, it went down to six. And Thomas jumped up on the wall, climbed over. I climbed over. I followed him. We went out into the streets. And uh, there laid a young, I'd say man, but it was boy. 15, 16, 17 years old. He'd been shot. um, Close range. Executed. Two shots, back of the head for his iPhone and his headphones. By the time we got there, it was too late. We just were kind of by his side as as he bled out. And as we left that scene, we were returning back to the school and to to safety. I asked Thomas, (laughs) you ran towards bullets, like like you understand that. How do you make the call that that's safe? And he said, well, it's easy. You watch the crowd. And as soon as the gunshots went off, there was this quick, everybody was running away from the scene. So he goes, I run towards the scene as everybody runs away. And as I get closer to where I thought the gunshots were, as soon as I went over the wall, I realized that people weren't running anymore. So that let me know that it was safe, that the shooter, that the assailant had fled He goes, if I had jumped over the wall and people were running faster, I would have ran with them. But he goes, David, sometimes you've got to run against the crowd to see the thing that no one else is going to see. And sometimes you run against the crowd to capture the picture that nobody else will ever take. My my, my prayer this morning, and this might sound unusual, that maybe for someone in this room, Luke 19 is going to be that gunshot. And, and studying this passage will be the thing that captures your heart to move towards Jesus. The series is God drawing near. When God draws near, it requires a response from us. And my, my prayer is that God's going to use this text. His words, not mine. This text. To move powerfully in somebody's life. To, to get into... What we're going to look at in Luke 19, I've got to take you back just for context. I'm going to look at two quick passages from Luke 18, just one chapter back. One of them is to give you some context. The other is to set a contrast. In Luke 18, in verse 9, it says this. It says, he, he is Jesus. It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you this, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus then, in verses 15 to 7 there's this interesting exchange where he says, let the children come to me. The children are kind of swarming around Jesus. The disciples are trying to get them to go away. He goes, let them come. You can't be saved unless you come with childlike faith. And then he goes into a story that I preached here last month. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but just as review, Luke chooses to describe, along with Matthew and Mark, all three Gospels. I preach this from Mark 10, but in Luke 18, there's this encounter with Jesus, and it says that a ruler asked him, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And Jesus gave this interesting answer. He said, go keep the law. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. John records, he says, don't defraud. Honor your mother and father. And this man looks at Jesus and says, all of these things I've done since my youth. Jesus hearing that answer He looks at the man and he says, you only need to do one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And different translations and different versions from different gospels describe what happens next differently. Some say that the man left disheartened, that he was extremely sad, that he was burdened, that he was distressed. But this man, upon hearing that, walks away. Just a couple things from this passage... Jesus will go on and say, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, then who can be saved? The man who approached Jesus was held in high regard. He was affluent He was a leader. He came from a prestigious family. He had no problem getting to Jesus. There was no interference. And as he gets to Jesus, he asks the wrong question What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives this curious response Keep the law. The guy's like I did. Now, there's some pride there, but please also note this about this guy. He was a righteous guy. He was doing everything that he thought that he could. He was morally upstanding. To the point where when this man walks away, the disciples say, "I can't believe that guy's not saved." He had a good name. He had a good reputation. He was leaving a good legacy. But his encounter with Jesus, in spite of all of that, ended in great sorrow, in disappointment. He left unsatisfied. says so Jesus, as he watched him leave, not only was the man sad, but Jesus was sad. That's the contrast. Let me get into our text in Luke 19. We're going to see another encounter that Jesus has with another man. It says in verse 19 or chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jer- Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. The, the first thing, if you're keeping notes, I'm going to really try to stay on my notes, but I'm not. You guys okay with that? But if you're keeping notes and you're kind of a, a blankophobe, the first blank is this a common problem. Both the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, they got to get to Jesus. I want to work through these first three verses a little bit backwards to kind of explain what we're dealing with. It says in verse three, and he was seeking to see who jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature strikes me as odd if i'm in a crowd and i want to see the speaker or whatever's going on and a short little guy wants to push in front of me i have no problem with that do you know why that is i can look right over the guy I have a couple daughters, twin daughters. One of them is here today, Nicole. I say this with permission. She's four nine and a half. If you ask her, <laughs> see, see, when you're four nine, that the half is really important. And um, if we were somewhere and she wanted to stand in front of me, like I got no problem with that. I can rest my chin right on the top of her head. It's great. <laughs> The tall guy, that's the guy I don't want to get through the crowd. Because when that guy is in front of me, I can't see a thing. He, he blocks my view. But in this case, the small guy is prevented by the crowd from getting to Jesus. I think it has very little actually to do with his height. I think that this guy was um, unwelcomed by the crowd. If you look in verse 2, it says this. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Chief tax collector, when we think of tax collecting, we think of the IRS, okay? I would ask if anybody here works for the IRS, I doubt you would be real willing to raise your hand. Don't think of the IRS, that's not what this is about. Think of the mob, think of mafia, Zacchaeus was in the business of shaking down his own people with the full force of Rome behind him. He was responsible for collecting taxes from the Jewish people to give them to the Roman authorities, but he also had free license to overcharge whatever he wanted to extort his own people. He had that ability And the text is pretty clear, he was rich, so we can deduce that that's what he did. So don't think IRS, think John Gotti. Think the Corleone family, okay? That's what's going on here. But this day, we don't see him with his group. It says he's a chief tax collector, so that means he probably had a province that he oversaw the taxes in which there were different districts, in which there were lower-level Mafia thugs that were extorting Businesses and families And they were taking their portion And he was skimming some off the top of that But this day he is From all we can tell in the text He is on his own And he is hated by the crowd He would also be hated by Rome For what it's worth Because even though they were his muscle I doubt they had any respect for him In shaking down his own people And being a traitor So He can't get through the crowd. Look at verse 2. One other fact that I want you to know here. Look at the first phrase. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. This is a pretty profound point. Stay with me. I don't want you to get lost, okay? Here's my point there. We know his name. Zacchaeus has a name. He's a thug. He's a traitor. He's a scoundrel. And 2,000 years later, we know his name. What was the rich young ruler's name? We don't know. We spend so much time thinking about our reputation, our legacy, what people think of us. The rich young ruler had everything in his corner. He was a man of integrity. And 2,000 years later, we don't know his name. But 2,000 years later, we know Zacchaeus' name, right? We can even sing songs about Zacchaeus. He was a, a wee little man, was he, right? I just think it's interesting that when we think about our legacies and think about our name, and the Old Testament is clear Proverbs tells us that a good name is to be treasured beyond silver and gold, all of that is true. Zacchaeus was none of those things. He was a scoundrel. But Matthew 19, they chose to record his name. So he has a problem. His his problem is different than the rich young ruler because of the pedigree of the rich young ruler. He could get right to Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't have that ability. He was kept away. But you've got two rich men who both come from different backgrounds, different reputations, but they come to the same place. They have a common problem for all of their riches, and and the problem isn't wealth. The problem with wealth is it affords you the ability to pursue whatever you would want to pursue without pursuing Christ. Both of these men have everything that the world could offer, but they've come to the same point. They, They want to get to Jesus because they realize that they're lacking. They want something more. It's interesting. There's a verse... In Haggai, I won't make you turn there, I'll put it on the screen. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in the bag with holes. C.S. Lewis said it this way If I find In myself, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis is describing this internal longing. It is a common problem inside all of us, and it doesn't matter if you are a righteous man like the rich young ruler or if you are a scoundrel like Zacchaeus. Whatever the world offers, you finally get to the point where you're not satisfied. It's hardwired into us. And both of these men have a common problem. And they both approach Jesus. But though they have a common problem, here's the second thing. They take a very different approach. Look at verse 4. So Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For Jesus was about to pass that way. So a different approach. I want you to see in the text, I hope these points are clear, what it takes to see Jesus. How do you get to Jesus? How do we have Zacchaeus' name 2,000 years later? Why does he become the significant one while the rich young ruler fades into oblivion? Well, there's some things that he did to get to Jesus. Here's point number one. It's pretty profound. He climbed a tree. He climbed a tree when I was a young kid, I used to like to climb trees. And um, what I would do is there was this tree kind of in between my yard in the back and and, and our neighbor's yard. It was a big willow tree. And it it was tall, but it had a branch fairly low, maybe six, seven feet up. And it was horizontal. And what I would do is I would jump up, I would grab that branch, and then I would throw my legs up, wrap my legs around the branch, and then I could flip myself over and I would be sitting on that branch, and from there I could navigate my way up the rest of the tree. And and the way that I really like to climb trees is sometimes you'd find like a pine or a fir tree that was, you know, these big, broad branches. But if you could get up right along the trunk, you could go up really high. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Don't leave me hanging. And anybody here, when you were young, you liked to climb trees, just raise your hand. Like, wasn't that fun? No, leave them up, leave them up. Don't don't be shy. Okay, so we had some people that liked to climb trees. I'm not alone out here. Okay, here's a question. How many of you climbed a tree this week? Why not? We all agree it's fun, right? How how come you didn't climb a tree? And some of you are like gravity. Like, I I know, I know, okay? (laughs) But we don't climb trees anymore because when you're a child and you climb a tree, it makes sense. It doesn't look unusual, but if I'm in the tree at the neighbor's house across the street as you guys leave the service, like, there's some phone calls being made, right? Like, we look foolish if we climb a tree today. But to get to Jesus, Zacchaeus was willing to climb a tree. He was willing to look foolish. If you really want to get to Jesus, you've got to be willing to look foolish. People aren't going to understand you. You're going to confuse some people. Your family is going to be like, so, so explain this to me again. You go to Harvest and you attend a service, and then you serve at another service, and then you go to um, small group, um, you are way over the top. Like, I'm not against you going to church, but this idea of making Jesus a priority, seriously, you're going you're gonna to process things in a way that the world can't understand. So so you get a job offer across the state and it's a 50% raise and you got to work a little bit longer hours, but that's going to be okay because it's going to provide for your family in a way that you haven't been able to hear. And as you process the decision, one of the things that you consider is, I don't know that I have a good church family over there. And, And... we're plugged into a small group and I'm accountable to a group of guys and if I take the job, though it gives me a financial return, I'm concerned that I'm going to be able to find a good church. I'm going to lose my accountability. So maybe in our walk with Christ, we think at this point it's more important for us to stay here and maybe pass on this opportunity. Like I'm telling you, the, the, the world is not going to understand that. Could, could we just agree that the world's running a different way than we are? As, would, would you guys just agree with that? This weekend... Um, Last weekend, I preached at the South Campus. We went right to the airport. We flew out to Washington, D.C. Kristen and I were there Sunday through Wednesday just for our anniversary. We've been married 36 years. And on our anniversary night on June 4th, I took her to a White Sox game in Washington, D.C. Good woman, okay? And so I was all excited to go to this game. It was a beautiful night. We're we're sitting in the, um, I got really good seats. We were about five rows right behind home plate, really excited, everything's great. What I didn't realize that, Well, this game was was, um, gay pride night. And I would just say there was an unusual vibe in the ballpark. Not the issue being homosexuality, but there was a pressure to embrace and celebrate a lifestyle that's different than mine. The world thinks we're crazy. We, we went to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. We're excited to see that. And if you've gone there, you will know this. If you haven't, please hear this. It's done with absolute excellence. From the moment you walk in to the end, it does a wonderful job of telling you the history and the miraculous preservation of God's word that we have today. All of the exhibits are first class, and as you go into the Old Testament, kind of a multimedia display for 30 minutes, it tells you about the nation and how it was chosen and how man fall and how man is, um, God has preserved the nation of Israel through the patriarchs and the kings. I, I just wish they'd mentioned the Messiah. And then you go to the New Testament and they talk about John the Baptist, the forerunner to the gospel. And then they go about 90 seconds on Jesus and then they spend a lot of time on Paul and the spread of the gospel. All good, all good content. But we left. Why wasn't the gospel the center? Because if you put the gospel in the center of your museum... The academic scholars will ridicule you. There's that pressure. And you need to understand, in in our culture, if you've ever started to describe the gospel to somebody who has no church background, and you begin to say, well, there's God, and, and God is holy, and he's good, and then there's this force of evil, and it's Satan, and there's fallen angels, and there's spiritual warfare that we're not even aware of, but God sent his son Jesus, and though we can't save ourselves, this Jesus comes and he saves it. All of a sudden, you're like, It sounds like I'm describing an Avengers movie. Or Batman. Or or Superman. Because there's all of these fake gospel accounts trying to describe a reality. And all of a sudden as you're doing it, if, if I were to look at you and say, I really believe in Batman. I think he's the answer to our problems. You'd look at me like, you got some issues. That's the way people look at you when you describe Jesus Christ to them when they're not familiar with the gospel. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, Jesus is not one more story pointing to the underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all other stories point. But I'm telling you, in our world, to claim, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not just a sideline Christian, but a, a, a person where Jesus and being obedient is your priority, you look foolish. And we avoid looking foolish. If you want to really see Jesus, you got to be willing to climb a tree. In that, let me give you the second point, because it builds off that. In climbing the tree, you have to be able to see above the crowd, you got to get over the crowd. Now, look at verse 7. I'm going to jump a couple verses, but this gives us some insight into. Who was in this crowd. Jesus is going to approach Zacchaeus. They're going to have an exchange. And in verse 7 it says this. And when they saw it. The crowd grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man. Who is a sinner. One of the reasons. That people don't get to Jesus. Are the people. That follow Jesus. Christians. Are not the greatest ambassador. For the cause of Christ. If, If I were to. Ask the people in this room to give accounts from their story, their past, of bad business deals with professing Christians, bad experiences in churches, abuse at the hands of people who claimed the name of Christ. If I asked you to share those stories, we could stay busy for a while. Would you agree? And see, people look at the people around Christ and they say, if that is the product of the gospel, I don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes we're the problem. Are we the problem? Here's a litmus test just from the text. Do you see what the crowd says about Zacchaeus? They say, I can't believe this. Jesus is going to the house of a sinner. One of the ways you know if you're part of the problem, if you really understand the gospel, is who you call a sinner. See, the crowd looks at Zacchaeus and they say, he does not measure up. I read to you from Luke 18. A tax collector goes to pray and he says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. If you see everybody else in the room is having a sin problem, if you're sitting there saying, boy, I hope the guy next to me is getting this message. To get to Jesus, you've got to get over the crowd. And, and just one other thing, it's not just that you got to understand what the crowd called him. They called him a sinner. And, and, and there are people in this room with stories and with pasts, and they, they convince themselves that they're never going to be able to get to Jesus because the things in their story would prevent them access. The crowd has judged them. You've got to get over the crowd. Look at verse 5. So Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He's looking a little silly. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. A couple things I just want to point out from those verses, if I could. Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he says, Get down from there fast. Brett is one of my friends. He's about my age. And uh, if I saw Brett in a tree, I'd say, Brett, come down. Slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful. Gravity, right? I, I, I wouldn't rush. So you've got Jesus saying, get down fast. You've got Zacchaeus hurrying down from the tree. Why the urgency? Why why did the story just get rapid on us? I'm not sure. Can I suggest one thing? When Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, I think the pace, hurry, come down. I'm coming today. I think it communicates this. There's no check in Jesus' spirit of whether he's going to go to his house or not. Jesus never for a moment goes, I wonder how the crowd's going to respond to this. Not sure I want to go with this guy. He's a scoundrel. Maybe I should give him some time to repent first. Jesus says, Come down. By the way, Zacchaeus hasn't repented yet. So he tells him, Come quick. There's no check. If your story is such that you don't think that Jesus would accept you, that's a lie. That's a lie. Here's the most important thing in that verse. Again, it's not very profound. Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Jesus knew his name. He knew his name. Again, so much time on what people think and how we're perceived and get the cool story out on Facebook. He might even get 100 likes. Okay? Worried about our legacy, our reputation, what people will say about us when we're gone. Listen, history is a, has a horrible memory. <laughs> Most of us, we're not going to be remembered a generation, two generations from now. What people think of us doesn't really make a lot of difference. In the Old Testament, there's a series of kings, and it's interesting because Many of the kings in the Old Testament, their lives are summarized by one phrase. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like their entire career, one sentence. That's what history does. There's a guy in the Old Testament we don't know a lot. He's got an incredible legacy. His name's Enoch. Do you know what we know about Enoch? He had a kid named Methuselah. And we know this, this is his life, this is a whole descriptor. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. We're striving for a good name. You want to know what a good name is? It's a name that Jesus knows. I won't take the time to turn there, but in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's some people that approach Jesus and they say, we've done good works in your names, we've cast out demons, we've prophesied in your name and Jesus looks at them and he says depart from me I never knew you I don't know your name to get to Jesus you have to be willing to look foolish you've got to get over the crowd and you've got to be really sure that Jesus knows your name here's a third thing from the text Again, I hope you see this there. He climbed a tree, he got above the crowd, and he took Jesus home. When Jesus says that I'm coming to your house, that doesn't mean that he's coming over to watch a Netflix movie and order Domino's. It's a little more complex than that in the text. It doesn't mean that Jesus is just going to show up and have a meal. What the language points to is he's going to move in and live with him probably not in a basement apartment. To to live with somebody in that day meant you were in each other's space. The houses weren't that advanced. They weren't that big, even for a rich man. And when Jesus says, I'm going to come live with you, Zacchaeus had to take the relationship with Jesus and let it invade every part of his life. When God draws near, we're forced to make a choice, to make a decision. He was willing to take Jesus home. It says that Zacchaeus came down from the tree. What does it say? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. It changed him. Whatever he had looked for to satisfy him in his life that got him to the point where he had to get to Jesus as Jesus knows his name and please note Jesus didn't say hey get down and change Zacchaeus will go on in the text he's going to say I'm going to give away fourfold everything that I ever defrauded anyone from Jesus never told him to pay those people back the order's important Jesus accepted him before he repented and because of the love of Jesus, the accepting love of Jesus, it transformed him. That's the gospel. Jesus moves first. He lets us see ourselves for who we really are. And when we confess our need for a Savior, he's already there. It says he's the son of Abraham. He was willing to look foolish. He got over the crowd and what the crowd thought of him. And he was willing to take Jesus home. See, the moment of the gunshot, you have to make a choice. You're confronted with a decision. You can run the other way, you can run the way the world is running, you can run towards, and you're going to see something that most of the world will miss. The same is true with the gospel. Hebrews is clear. There are moments when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. And for some of you here today, you're saying, I've never made the decision to follow Jesus. And if the truth were known, I'm quite confident that he wouldn't know my name. That can be resolved today. There's some of you who say, I've followed Jesus. I've claimed the name of Christ. But listen, I, I never take that step of embarrassment. I'm not bold with my faith. I would never share it with somebody else. I would be too afraid of offending them or what they would think of me. If you want to get to Jesus, you got to get over that. And then the final question, is he in every aspect in your, of your life if you invited him home? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a simple story. We thank you for... Um, a scoundrel whose name we know. Father, when we consider what we are running towards, Father, impress in our spirits, impress in our hearts that there is nothing greater to pursue than your presence in our lives. Father, what makes us great is only that we reflect your greatness, that we are known by you, that we are loved by you. And Father, we declare those things to be true. You have shown it over and over, never so profoundly than the gift of your son who is willing to die for us and take our place so that we could know, experience, and live for you. Father, we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.